Your belief will be based on something. The question is what? But God is not interested just in your belief, but also in your behavior. And more and more and more in this day of gross ignorance, where people view the Bible like any other religious book, it's not until they see a life that is changed by it, a life that exhibits the wisdom of Scripture that you will very often then have their ear. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in chapter 15 of the Book of Romans in a message entitled Christian Unity. And Pastor Brogy has been looking at the marks of a healthy, unified New Testament church. One of those marks is the belief in the inerrancy of Scripture. That's the belief that the Bible was indeed written by God through various men over various centuries. But as we pick up, we'll see that there are those who would seek to undermine Scripture by ridiculing some passages, particularly those in the book of Genesis. But again, what I find so fascinating is that the very texts that they criticize are the very texts that Jesus tends to quote. In his omniscience, it's like he looks down the corridors of time to the last of the last days, and he sees the higher criticism that we would face. And so Jesus said in Mark 10, have you not read he who created them made them male and female? And then he'll go on and say, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He institutes marriage. What did leaving father and mother have to do with Adam and Eve? Absolutely nothing. They had no father and mother. They were the first who are a direct creation of God. But God is establishing marriage between a man and a woman. And so last week, one of the higher uppity-ups in the Episcopal Church came out again and said that marriage does not need to be defined between a man and a woman. And listen, these pastors, these theologians, these politicians in the name of political correctness who say that homosexuality is fine and we ought to embrace it and celebrate it are liars and they are contradicting the plain word of God and the words of Jesus Christ. One of the longest sermons I ever preached is entitled, Is It Okay to Be Gay? And I preached it because it is such a hot issue in our day. And it's on YouTube if you're interested. And I went through every single passage of the Bible that deals with the subject. And the only conclusion you can say is that text is wrong. That that part is not inspired. And that's what they're saying under the banner of higher criticism. Jesus used Lot's wife as an illustration for his second coming to be ready because she was not. And so he said in Luke 17, 32, remember Lot's wife. In Matthew 24, also in reference to his second coming, he said, for the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Oh, there's a real fellow named Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. 
Likewise, when speaking of that coming great tribulation period, the worst time that human history will ever know, it's 9-11 multiplied by a million Jesus said in the middle of the great tribulation, right at the halfway point, he said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, the Bible refers to that event when the Antichrist will go into a temple there on the mount in Israel, right in the middle of the great tribulation period, and he will make himself out to be God. The abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet. When you see that, then listen up. He doesn't call him Daniel the historian, but Daniel the prophet. In like fashion, he said this to the unbelieving Pharisees, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And then in the parallel account, he adds in Matthew, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of this sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The Lord Jesus linked the actuality of his resurrection to the actuality of the fact that Jonah In his ministry, the Ninevites spent three days in the belly of a great fish. One pastor told the story of a little girl there in his church as she waited outside the Sunday school classroom for her parents to go to big church. And he noticed that she had a big Bible storybook under her arm. And he said, well, what's that you have there in your hand? And he was being a little mischievous and She said, well, this is my Bible. This is my storybook about the Bible. He said, oh, really? Well, what did you study today? Well, we studied about Jonah and the great fish. The pastor said, well, tell me something. Do you you really believe that Jonah was swallowed by a great fish? She said, "Of, of course, it's in the Bible. He said, you mean to tell me that you believe that a man could be swallowed by a great fish and live in that great, great fish for three days and survive? She said, yes, pastor, there's stories in the Bible. We talked about it today and God said it and I know it's true. Then he said to her, well, can you prove to me the story is true? And she kind of bit her lip and thought for a second. She said, well, when when I get to heaven, I guess I'll ask Jonah. And he said, well, what if he's not in heaven? She said, then you ask him. You see, the Lord Jesus believed every single word of the Bible. He taught the scripture could not be broken, meaning you can never prove an error in the Bible anywhere. And if your view of scripture does not match the view of the Lord Jesus, then you should abandon your view of scripture. Now, the liberals can't get around the clear teachings and statements of the Lord Jesus. And so their argument is, well, he was just accommodating to the people. He was just agreeing with a commonly held myth that they embraced, and he didn't want to shatter their faith, so he just agreed with it. That makes the Lord Jesus deceitful. That's a blasphemous statement against his character. That makes him a sinner, and if he is a sinner, he cannot be the savior of the world. Listen, as a general rule, a man's theology is dictated by his morality. 
I don't care if it's a Joseph Smith who wants to have 40 women that he calls his wives, and so he writes a book that will justify it. I don't care if it's the Koran that will tell you that you can murder in the name of Allah so you can have 70 virgins in heaven. I don't care who it is. A man's morality will dictate his theology. And these who attack the Scripture are rebels against its truth. In every church that is not a scriptural church, that does not major in the exposition of the Bible, it's not a strong and healthy church. Last month, a rather influential megachurch pastor in our state, Perry Noble, blogged as to what the church at large should be. And he shared 10 convictions he had for the church in America and for his new spring church. And he said this, and I quote, community or fellowship, we would say, community is more important than reading the Bible. The early church didn't have the Bible for the first 300 years of Christianity, but they did have one another. I read that and I thought, you can't be serious. The apostle Paul assumes by the statement he makes in Romans 15, 4, that they had the scriptures that the Scriptures were available to the, to the New Testament church. Number one, they're reading his letter to the Romans. Number two, he recognizes that they had the Old Testament Scriptures readily available to them. And so on the missionary journeys of Paul, you see wherever he went, whatever town he went, he would reason from their Scriptures, their copies, that Jesus was the Christ. Because the death, burial, and resurrection, his whole life is spoken of in the Old Testament. And he's reminding them, and by extension and application, us, that the application of the Old Testament scriptures did not exhaust themselves in the, in, in the Old Testament era. Uh, every time I hear this guy, he scares me. At best, he is a novice, and he is unqualified to be a pastor. And that's why no one will ordain him. But I could not let this one go. It is such a dangerous statement. His false claim that the church did not have the Bible for some 300 years is sheer ignorance. Within eight years, the Gospel of Matthew is written. By 70 AD, nearly 90% of the Bible is concluded. And by 90 AD, the whole Bible is finished. That's why in the New Testament, if you're not following the Scriptures, you're reprimanded for not doing so. And when you are, you are commended. But we live in a day when people have strayed from the truth of Scripture. Listen, community, fellowship, is not to trump the Scripture. You put anything over the Scripture, sola scriptura, Scripture is to have preeminence in the church. There is no fellowship without the Scripture. The Word of God is the seed that brings about conversion that even gives us fellowship. The Bible is, the church is birthed through the Scriptures. The church gives us fellowship that is to be based on the Scriptures. It tells us how to have fellowship and now how not to have fellowship. But when you put other things in priority, then you can make up all kinds of lies and people will believe it. It's a grave error what he said. It's an awful thing that he said. 
But you see, in our day, people don't know the Bible anymore. 90% of Americans cannot name more than three of the Ten Commandments. Another survey said four. They don't know the Bible. And they go to these churches that are feel-good, that are not rooted in the Word of God, and it just goes right by them, and they don't say it. Every time I hear this guy, I cringe, and I say, I can't believe what I just heard, and no one even hears it because of the air of our day. But think about it for just a second. Think about the similes and the metaphors that God uses to exalt his word. For instance, in 1 Peter 1.23, it's likened to seed. He said, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. No one has ever been saved at any time in human history apart from the word of God. Even before Moses penned the first verse, God gave his word through dreams and visions and in various means. The word of God is the living word that God uses to bring about a second birth. And so it is not only likened as a seed, it is also compared to light. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. If we at Community Bible Church want to be a church that is lighted, that is a beacon in the midst of darkness, a beacon that is leading people genuinely to Jesus Christ, then we need to be lighted by the word of God. It's like a seed that brings forth fruit. fruit. Listen, we as might as well have plant marbles and expect to see corn come out of the ground as to see people one to Christ without the preaching of God's word. It is seed that brings forth fruit. It is light that dispels darkness. It's also bread that nourishes the body. Listen to what Jesus said, quoting the Old Testament. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. If we want to be nourished, if we want to be a strong church, we cannot feed on the methodologies methodologies of men. We cannot feed on the wisdom of this world. We must feed on the word of God. And that needs to be true, not just corporately on the Lord's day, but individually throughout the week. Some of you, I fear, did not open your Bible until this morning, and the last time was last Sunday. You will never be a strong believer until you consistently feed on the Word of God. We're told in Hebrews 4 and verse 12 that it is also like a sword, for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We're in a spiritual war, and we need spiritual weapons in which to battle. The weapons of our warfare, Paul told the Corinthians, are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And I've been in ministry, full-time ministry since 1978, and I've seen this sword cut and cut and cut and cut and cut like a surgeon's scalpel and affect what God wants it to affect. And so it pierces, the scripture says, as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and it's able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. When a pastor preaches and teaches, and when you disciple others, when you share the gospel, when you open the Bible, it's like a scalpel. It's also a hammer. Jeremiah the prophet said, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? Would you try to smash a rock with your bare hands? No, you'd break out a sledgehammer. Listen, how are we going to break the hard rock Spirits of people in these last days, 
only through the Word of God. It's not going to be some pastor telling a cute story or a book review or some philosophical flowery thoughts or citing some poem. That's not what changes lives. You're birthed by the Word of God, and like a newborn baby, you are to grow according to the Word of God. So it's seed that brings forth fruit. It's a lamp that turns on the light. It's bread that nourishes our body. It's a sword that fights the enemy. It's a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. And so he says in verse 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instructions so that through perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And again, how appropriate, because they are in a discussion, in really in a battle in the Roman church over Old Testament issues. And while these Old Testament issues were fulfilled in Christ, he's not saying that the Old Testament is meaningless. It is very, very, very important. It will equip you for every good work. And so when he writes the church at Corinth, he asks them to go back and remember what happened in the great exodus. And after he recounts several experiences, he says in 1 Corinthians 10, now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they craved. He also said in the same chapter, now these things happened to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Do you want to know how to live? Then study the Word of God. And yes, even the Old Testament. And the word here for instruction, didaskalon, we get our word didactic, is a word that speaks not just of belief, but of behavior. Listen, someone is going to give you something to believe. Everyone in this room believes something. And someone gave it to you. And if it didn't come from the Word of God, then you ought to abandon it. Your belief will be based on something. The question is what? But God is not interested just in your belief, but also in your behavior. And more and more and more in this day of gross ignorance, where people view the Bible like any other religious book, it's not until they see a life that is changed by it, a life that exhibits the wisdom of Scripture that you will very often then have their ear. And so we take the Scripture, even the Old Testament Scripture, and we apply its wisdom to life. And so do you want to know how to live? Then Paul would say, study the Exodus. Read the challenges of Daniel. Feel the great loss of Job. Watch Hosea as he deals with his unfaithful wife. Stand by Gideon as he chooses to live by faith. Feel the agony of Nehemiah's heart as it's broken over the state of his people. And listen to Joseph as he turns away from a woman who is seeking him. Whatever was written was written for one hour instruction so that through perseverance, keeping on, and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. People need hope today. The psalmist said, My soul cleaves to the dust. Revive me according to Your Word, O Lord. My soul weeps because of grief. Strengthen me according to Your Word. And then he wrote in that hymn, I will also speak of Your testimonies before kings and shall not be ashamed. I shall delight in your commandments, which I love, and I shall lift up my hands to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Remember the word to your servant in which you have made me hope. Finally, and just quickly, a unified church is a strengthening church. A unified church is a scriptural church. And a unified church is a same-minded church. 
Verse 5, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. He is not only calling us to embrace the saints that we might have hope, he uh, embraced the scriptures that we might have hope. He's also calling us to embrace the saints that we can have harmony so that we can be of the same mind. And by that, he does not mean we'll all look alike, that we'll all have the same temperaments or interests or act alike. There's no two people in the world who are alike. No one even has the same fingerprint. No, the same mindedness that he is speaking of is qualified. Notice it comes from the Father according to Jesus Christ. Now, those of you who remember your English, the words perseverance and encouragement are genitives. That is, they are possessives. And what a beautiful picture here of God. In fact, the, I think the old King James picks up the possessive nature of these words better than the NAS. May the God of patience and comfort. Our God is a God of patience. He is long-suffering. And He's a God of comfort. The same word used of the Holy Spirit, parakletos. He's a God of encouragement, and He wants to grant those qualities to us. And as we study our Father, who is a God of encouragement and a God of comfort, then He will begin to build those qualities into our lives, and we will be able to display it towards other people. So how do we know if we have this? How do we know if we're really a unified church? Well, one of the answers is given in verse 6. Look at it. So that with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we are of the same mind, then with one voice, we will glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what happens very often when people come to this church? You know, I call every visitor if they'll give me their phone number just to talk to them, see if I can serve them. And I hear it all the time. They'll say, you know, when I came to Community Bible Church, I never heard people sing like that before. In fact, just recently a visitor told me that, not of this campus, but the group there in Bluffton. They said, that place was alive. And they're, they're just watching it through a screen. They said, there, there's something there. You can tell a whole lot about a church by the way they sing. You know, I recently received a letter from some saints in Canada and every Sunday at the 9.15 service, there's a whole group of saints in Canada who watch our first service before they go to their 11 o'clock service in their town. And they wrote in the letter how encouraged they were by the singing and by the teaching of Scripture. You can tell a lot about a church by the way they sing. I went to a secret church recently, and I'm telling you, you talk about a band, you talk about smoke, you talk about lights, it was everywhere. But it was narcissistic. It was self-centered. It was make me feel good. But most people didn't have the discernment to see it. Because discernment, the writer of the Hebrews comes, tells us comes by obeying and exercising truth. And there was a big deficit in that church. You can go to a church where the people seem as dead as can be. Dead as a fish. Of course, how can they sing when they're at odds with one another? When they're battling one another? No, this unity 
It comes by being of the same mind. And when people become other-centered and they are scripturally taught, everything changes. And with one voice, they glorify our God and Father together. Now, my friend, if you've never received Christ, you can't do that. You can listen to us. But you can't do it from your heart until you're regenerated by the Spirit, until God the Holy Spirit comes to live in you and He gives you that ability to sing. Not necessarily in terms of being on note, but just the heart to sing. That's what the Bible teaches in Ephesians 5. But you can't have Him living in your bosom until your sin is forgiven. And God wants to give you that forgiveness. And I don't care what you've done. I don't care how many times you've done it. I don't care how deep you think your sin may be. There's not a single solitary thing that Jesus Christ cannot forgive. And the tragedy of tragedies is that someone would go through this life unforgiven because when you cross over to the other side, there's no chance of change. And beyond that tragedy of tragedies is to go through this life without Christ, without knowing the real meaning of life, He not only wants to forgive your sin, He wants to give you a new life. You may be listening to me today and you're in some prison or you're some drug addict or you just feel like you've destroyed your family and you're saying, Pastor, what can God do for me? He can do everything. He can forgive you. He can make you a new person on the inside. He can take your old self-centeredness and make you other-centered and care about things that really matter. No one is so low down that God cannot bring them up. No one is so far out that God cannot bring them to himself. No one is such a rebel and such an enemy that God cannot reconcile them through the blood of his son. But you have to come through his cross or there is no hope. Now, our Holy Father, I pray today for someone who's here who's never done that. Help them to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved. Help them to know that He didn't die for some of their sin or most of it, but all of it bled for it, was punished for it, and was raised from the dead showing He could do it. Help them today to call upon Jesus' name. Would you do that? If you've never done that, would you say in simple childlike faith, Lord Jesus, save me. Now, Father, this text of Scripture was written to your people. And we've come and gathered on this Lord's Day because it's your day all day long. And we're here to find out what you've said. And we've come not just to be those who listen to the Word, but to those who obey it. And you know that in the heart of each and every person, myself included, there is still self-centeredness and sin that you just want to root out and make more like your son. So help us to heed the instruction that we've heard today. Help those who are strong to bear the weak and those who are weak not to despise the strong. Help us to do what the Lord Jesus did, not just to please Himself, but to be other-centered. And thank you for the ultimate example of that through His cross. We bless you for it, Lord Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. As much as God is interested in your belief, He is also interested in your behavior. Does your behavior exhibit your belief in Jesus Christ? Are you living a life that is following His example? 
To listen again to this or any of the messages in our series from the Book of Romans, use the Search the Scriptures app available in the iTunes Store or Google Play Store, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also call and request a CD or DVD copy. Our phone number is 877-787-7478. And today's program is ROM68, entitled Unity in the Church. Perhaps you have a question you'd like to ask Dr. Brogy personally. Well, you can do that Tuesday mornings between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow, we'll begin a message entitled, Receiving Sinners. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. <music>